On this episode of AvTalk, Jason finally gets to fly the Bombardier C-Series. We say goodbye to Monarch and check in on a few other airlines that have been having troubles lately. We get an update on the Air France A380 that suffered an engine failure over Greenland, and we find out how loon balloons might soon be helping the people of Puerto Rico recover from Hurricane Maria. Hello and welcome to episode 16 of the AvTalk podcast, our sweet 16. We finally made it. We're getting a car. Do we get a party? We we get a party. And what a kind car. of party? Where Where is the party? I didn't get my invite. Well, I, it's it, it's an evite. You should check your spam. Oh, yeah. Definitely went to spam. Definitely went to spam. So you've just come back from a, a whirlwind tour of Europe. I'm so tired. <laughs> You and Jeremy Dwyer Lindgren were were all over all over Europe doing some pretty cool stuff, and we're going to talk about that a little bit later in the show. But welcome back, and Thank you. Um, I'm glad you're still at least being propped up by your chair enough to record the podcast. Yeah, I'm tired, but it, it was worth it. I'm tired enough that I walked into a, a door today. So tired, not feeling great, but I'm, I'm here because of my dedication to this podcast. And I appreciate that. <laughs> So, since we last recorded, more airlines... Things have happened. More airlines have decided that they don't have the money to keep going. Notably, Monarch, which... For real this time. Yeah, for real this time. I mean, about a year ago, almost a year to the day, they were flirting with bankruptcy and were able to kind of pull out of it and even ordered, I want to say, almost three dozen 737 MAX in the intervening period. And then late September, early October, things started to get rocky and they officially filed for insolvency. And one of the, what has been described as one of the largest peacetime repatriation efforts is undergoing to make sure that their customers can, can get home. People that bought tickets on vacations and things like that can get back to the UK. Yeah, this is all kind of crazy. I, I, like you said, almost exactly a year ago to the day, they were on the brink of the end to the point where the UK government brought in all these United 747s from the States and positioned them to where they would have to repatriate their customers from. But thankfully, they didn't end up needing it. And then they just kind of brushed it off as like, yeah, no big deal. Our, the news of our death has been greatly exaggerated. And they decided while we're at it, let's buy three dozen 737 maxes. And one year later, it seemed like almost overnight, the airline was just gone. Yeah. And almost overnight, the UK Civil Aviation Authority had an effort in place. And and this is, I mean, I think we should step back for a moment and realize that this is a, a really sad thing because Monarch was a long loved airline by a lot of people, especially in the UK. I mean, I've gotten a few emails from people, a pilot who who flies for Virgin now, Virgin Atlantic, emailed me and, and said, if you're going to talk about this on the podcast, you really have to to let people know, you know how much we're going to miss this airline. A lot of the pilots who fly in the UK now grew up a long time ago. Either they got into aviation or they flew for Monarch or somehow had a you know, a connection to Monarch that, that this is a, a major, major thing for, for a lot of people to see this airline go away. Yeah, in quite the dramatic fashion, I think it was on Cranky Flyers blog that 
describe the differences in, in bankruptcy procedures in different countries. And in the UK, you declare bankruptcy and it's pretty much like you're gone overnight. It's right. not like in the US where every major airline at some point has declared bankruptcy and nothing changes overnight. Flights stay, flights operate just as scheduled, bookings happen, nothing really changes. But in the UK, you declare bankruptcy and that's it. You're done. No more. Yeah. And, and from an aviation perspective, that that's a huge the, problem. <laughs> the the doneness, uh, the the finality of insolvency, I mean, creates a a problem for a huge number of people. I mean, hundreds of thousands of people affected. And so, in the days preceding, it, it kind of became clear that that Monarch was on a path to insolvency when we started seeing a fleet of Qatar Airways A three twenties make their way back to the UK to position, and then Air Transat sent over a few A330s and an A310 to position in Bordeaux. And then a number of other airlines contributed to a massive effort. And airlines that that you've in the past done a uh, airlines you've never heard of or probably never heard of on, on Twitter. Probably never heard of. I like, I like to give people some credit. And, and there are a few among them. Blue Panorama. Oh, I know them. They have a 7.6. Yeah. Evelop. Ah, yeah. Well, they operated for Norwegian a whole bunch when their 7.8s were broken. Freebird Airlines. I've seen them in Germany. I have no idea where they're based. They're Turkish airline. Oh, of course. Plus Ultra. A340. Orange to Fly. Wait, isn't that South African? That's a good question. Hmm. We should look that up. We should look that up. Or you can email us and let us know so we don't have to look it up at podcast at fr24.com. Oh, no, they're Greek. Wamos is, I just like saying Wamos. Wamos 7-4. And then in a, I don't know whether, it, well, it's not ironic, but almost cruel twist. Smartlinks, which had been leasing an A320 to Monarch. So it was in a basic Monarch livery. Went back to Smartlinks and started operating repatriation flights. Ooh, that's awkward. So there's that. But I mean, just a host of airlines that the UK CAA cobbled together and brought uh, a fleet together to, to bear. And oh, a major one was Titan, which I, I think uh, a lot of people yeah. have heard of. Once again, Qatar's idle A320 has come to the aid of UK passengers. Yeah. Let's see, two, four, six, eight, ten of them. Over ten of them, actually. So that, that's even more than when BA was using them during the pilot strike. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they added a, a few more to the to the fleet. It's been quite the quite the number of airlines or quite the number of aircraft. Over forty for sure, and and almost almost fifty because there's a few I'm probably missing. That's fifty is kind of a crazy figure because that's a, a fleet of fifty aircraft is bigger than many many airlines all over the world. Yeah, I mean, obviously not operating all the time, but at least you know one one or two flights they they've operated. So it's a a pretty pretty impressive impressive operation. I'd love to know how they determine which of these charter airlines would operate which flights, like which which city on which day got the plus ultra A340 or whatever, and which day got the Titan A319 or whatever. That'd be interesting to figure out. Yeah. I, well, I, I know they, they consolidated a few where Monarch would have operated, say, two A321s. They consolidated the flights into you know one A340 or 
you know, one seven six seven, and then move some people over to there. There was a lot of a lot of moving pieces here, so it, it's it's impressive that that this kind of made it. They made it happen. Good for them. Shall we move on to the next airline that's going away? Uh, still going away, but we, Our, we have a we have yes. a date for when this airline is finally actually for realsies going away. So the end of this week, Air Berlin will stop long haul service because whatever's left of, of it well whatever yeah i mean there are three or four destinations to the to the east eastern coast of the u.s that'll stop on the 15th and then two weeks later on the 28th the short haul inter-european service will stop as well and then we can finally say rest in peace air berlin yes you, you so were you were in an airline and that's as much as we could say <laughs> <laughs> All those things are true. One of the interesting things to come out of Air Berlin's slow demise, I guess, because we've been talking about it almost for three or four episodes now, is Lufthansa is going to put a 747 on a domestic route. They haven't come out and said it, but the it's thinking the is... That, well, it, it's in the schedule, but they haven't come out and said why they're doing it. But the thinking goes is that there's going to be a bit of a capacity issue as Air Berlin stops. So throughout November, the Lufthansa 747 is scheduled to operate a domestic route, Frankfurt, Berlin. Yeah. I mean, Air Berlin was not an insignificant airline in Europe. They had a pretty big operation. Yeah. I mean, and, and still do, I mean, and, and will until, well, the 28th. Yeah. Sad to see them go. I never got the chance to fly them long haul or short haul, but it's another option that's just gone in a couple weeks yeah i mean they they were always a a decent option out of chicago you know an entry into into europe but yeah it it is it's sad to see it i mean anytime an airline goes out of business it's sad to yeah sad to while see. we were while i was in europe with jeremy last week or yesterday actually anytime we saw an air balloon a320 or 321 on the ramp i would say to him hey jeremy look it's the last time we're ever going to see air Berlin." But it happened like 20 times in that day. And I feel like that was almost kind of their problem. Like, why did we see Air Berlin 20 times in Zurich? I don't know. It, it just seemed odd to see them so often. But sad to see him go. Well, and I mean, you know, catch him while you can, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> the joke got funnier the 20th time then. <laughs> it always does. Yep. So the the last n- not going bankrupt though. Well, no, we, we we also wanted to talk about I think some of the questions were what happens to these airplanes when okay, the sure, airline yeah, yeah. goes bust. So as the case with Air Berlin, and I think is the case mostly with Monarch, is these airlines don't actually own the aircraft. But when the airline ceases operations, you can see on the site they kind of flock to certain cities. Ian, do you happen to know where a lot of the Monarch aircraft and Air Berlin aircraft have gone so far? You know what? I I do. I can pull that up. So Monarch has sent a number of them to Shannon, a number of them to Dublin, and a number of them to Ostrava. Ostrava is a a well-known paint center. So I I assume that they'll be getting a new livery and and being sent elsewhere because all of these aircraft are are leased and and sent out. Right. So what happens here is that Air Berlin almost entirely leased their aircraft rather than buying it. And that's a totally typical thing. Most airlines lease their aircraft from these big leasing firms, uh, GECAS or, or whomever. And 
when the when they determine the airline's not going to be able to pay their bills anymore, they want their very, very, very expensive aircraft back as soon as possible so they can begin the procedures of leasing these aircraft back out to someone else. It may take a while. They could sit around parked somewhere for years. I think there's a significant chunk of Trans Aero's fleet still in, in Shannon, oddly in Florida. I think all their 747s are parked. Melbourne, I think, yeah. Yeah, but the, these aircraft will sit around on the ground until some another airline anywhere in the world determines we need an A3200 or we need an A321. And then the lessee will make the deal with them. They'll get the aircraft painted. They may keep the same configuration on board. I think actually Malaysian is taking six of the Air Berlin A330s and they're leaving the configuration entirely the same. They're just putting on some new paint, new upholstery, and they're putting it right into service. So a lot of these aircraft will be pressed right back into service with another airline, but many of them will sit around for potentially years and may not ever actually fly again. Yeah, and and that's been especially the case with, with long haul or wide body aircraft that have been, you know, part of a an airline that's gone gone bankrupt or gone out of business where they they might not be the most efficient versions of that aircraft or especially if they're A340s or or 747s where they're just no one's got demand for those. But the the A320s and things, I mean, with Monarch's fleet, some of them were a bit on the older side, but there were a lot of them that are less than than 10 years old and some that are, you know, as young as two and four years old. And, and so I think that those will, those will certainly see, see life beyond Monarch. Yeah. A lot of Air Berlin's fleet is also relatively new. A lot, some of the A330s were brand new. In fact, they all had Wi-Fi, satellite Wi-Fi installed, which isn't cheap. And a good chunk of the narrowbody fleet actually had Wi-Fi installed too. So hopefully they end up with a, an airline that will, will take them and, and put them into service and keep the nice interiors they have. But only time will tell. Other than the 6A330 is going to Malaysia, we don't know what the fate is for these aircraft yet. If I remember correctly, as Transero was winding down, they sent two brand new A321s into, delivered into storage. Yep, pretty much. So I, I actually don't know what happened with those. No, I, I, I think they actually went to, to UT Air, maybe. No, UT Air is also supposed to... They took 738s brand new, one even with Wi-Fi. The first 738 with Wi-Fi, I think, went to UT Air and then immediately was parked, which is huh. kind of funny and sad. But yeah, that, that, that happens with some of these airlines that they purchased aircraft years in advance, and by the time they finally get them, they can't afford to actually put them into service. So... Another airline that has had some some issues lately, not necessarily risk at the risk of going bankrupt, but at the risk of heavy modification to their schedule, Ryanair has canceled a massive number of flights. And just it it's truly impressive the the amount of the amount of work that has gone into I mean, canceling between eighteen thousand flights between uh, November and March of 2018, so for the winter schedule, affecting That's a lot of flights. 400,000 people. That's a lot of people. That's a lot of flights, and that's a there. So, I mean, just to give you the scale of of how busy one airplane is, they have a fleet of over 400 737s, 800s, only 800s, right? And and so they're going to take 25 of them out of service 
from November to March. That sounds so insignificant. That means 18,000 flights and 400,000 people. It's an incredible number. And even more incredible is the reason why they have to do this. Well, there are many reasons... And depending on who you ask and, and who you believe, the, the reasons for them are, are a combination of factors. Well, the, the, let's, let's go with the one, the real reason. We all know the real reason. What's the real reason? real reason was that, well, as far as I know what the real reason is, that the UK had changed the, the way they mandate that companies hand out their leave time. And they used to have some sort of scheme to do it where you could do it in a nine-month schedule, but now they had to restart to do it with the year starting in January, and they screwed up the, the transition, and they had to squeeze 12 months of leave time for pilots since nine months, which is a bit problematic, and they just apparently couldn't manage that, and they had to just cancel this this huge amount of flights because of basically a, a crew scheduling mistake. We should, we should step back for a moment just to kind of give the scale of this in the scale of Ryanair things. 18,000 flights, 400,000 people, but that's going to affect less than 1% of their customers. Which is the craziest part. They kept that's saying what, in the yeah. beginning, it's less than 2% of our passengers. Well, when you do the math, that's a huge number of people. Right, right. I mean, it, it's, there's two scales here. One, that's a massive number of people. Two... In the grand scheme of things, it's a tiny fraction of the people that are flying in Ryanair. So, I mean, it's, it's you know, the scale of the airline and then the scale of the cancellations, which I, I think is, you know, two mind-numbingly large Yeah, it, it's numbers. a huge ding to the reputation, too, because Ryanair was not only known as being a low-cost carrier, but also fairly reliable. Unlike the low-cost carriers we have here in the U.S., I guess, Spirit and Frontier, who run a horrible operation in terms of on-time percentage and cancellations, Ryanair was usually pretty damn good at it. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, it's a lot of outside factors, but then there, there's also been, you know, a lot of blame placed on on Ryanair itself and, and how they've managed this and, and why it's all come about and things like that. So, I mean, it's it's one of those things where it's it's a massive number of people. It's not a massive number of people in the grand scale of things, but it's still a massive number of people. Well, in, in, the, in the grand scheme of things to the individual, they don't care how many people are affected. Well, ex- they exactly. only care that they are affected. Exactly. So that's, I mean, a truly impressive thing. So other truly impressive things that happened, of course, right after the last episode came out, an Air France A380 in route from Paris to, let me Come make on, sure you I can get do this it. one right. I you know can do I it. Can I'm do pretty this. sure it's LA. I'm not looking at the notes, but I'm pretty sure it's LA. <laughs> it's, it's LA. In route from Paris to LA, diverted to Goose Bay in northeastern Canada, and diverted there because of a major malfunction of the number four engine. So the right-hand engine on the outside of the wing. Malfunction's a very kind way of putting that. Well, I, I mean, because we don't know exactly what happened yet, you know, a number of phrases have been used to describe what happened. But let's just say that the the front of the engine became unattached to the rest of the engine. Yes, it ended up somewhere in Greenland. In Greenland, the, yes. Basically, the entire front cowling, the intake of the engine, 
all ended up in the snow in Greenland, and they actually found it rather quickly. They, they found some of it. Yeah, they, they found they found some of it, but not all of it. And so they're, they're kind of racing before the snow covers what's left to recover as many pieces that they can. Right. Not, not concerning at all, since I just flew in Air France A380 yesterday. And, um, <laughs> and you landed and we're recording the podcast. So obviously, you know, it, it all went fine. It did indeed. But yeah, no, it, it's, I mean, the amount of damage done to the engine. It's pretty spectacular. Is pretty spectacular. And the amount of damage to the rest of the aircraft is spectacular in its own right because of how little there is. Right. So to put this into perspective, uh, QF was it? 32, Qantas 32 yeah. back, back a, a bunch of years ago in Singapore. They had, I'm not going to say similar malfunction because we have no idea what happened here, but they had an uncontained engine failure of what was it, number three engine, the, the right inside engine. One of the inside engines, I think. One of right? the inside engines. Yeah, one of, one of the inner engines. And that uncontained engine failure took out a slew of extremely critical controls that they, it was a miracle almost. I don't want to say a miracle, it was damn good piloting that they were able to The number two engine, it was the other side. There you go. That they were able to troubleshoot all the issues and land back in Singapore in one piece. But that incident with Qantas, it shredded various, various amount of systems. It damaged the fuel system. It disabled one of the hydraulic systems, one of the braking systems, and it caused two other engines because of the other damage. It caused the number one engine and the number four engines to go into a degraded mode, damaged the landing flaps and the controls for the outer left number one engine. Right. And remember, when they when they landed in Singapore, they a couldn't shut the damn thing off. It just they, kept it, No, they, en- they ended up drowning the engine to get it to stop running. But in this case, with Air France, thankfully... Or luckily, I guess the uncontained. Both? Yeah, thankfully and luckily, the uncontained engine failure was contained to that engine, and they were able to continue on for quite a while, all the way from Greenland to Goose Bay, without yeah. having to make a really hasty landing. Well, I mean, yeah, the the, the options for hasty landings in that area would are far and few between. Sure, I mean, there's got to be somewhere in Greenland to touch down, no? There, there's. I don't know how to pronounce it, so I will type it and place it in the show notes. Oh, come on. It's Greenland. It can't be that complicated. <laughs> if you can help pronounce city names in Greenland, we would love to hear from you. Podcast at fr24.com because I have not worked on my pronunciation yet. So That'll be fun. I, I will do that and we can return to this. But the everyone was fine, a little shaken up, but but there were no injuries. The aircraft was landed safely in Goose Bay, and it's been sitting there ever since. And yesterday, we're recording this on the 11th of October, yesterday, Reuters reported that they're going to ferry the aircraft back with the three remaining operating engines after replacing, after taking off the damaged engine and replacing it with basically a dummy engine with, you know, the wings aren't out of balance, but the engine on the number four pylon won't be operating. Right, it so, will either so be, be windmilling or locked in place, I believe I read. Yeah, the, the fan core has to come out. So last night, Dave Walsworth, who is a captain for British Airways, an A380 captain for British Airways, typed up this, I mean, it's an impressive list 
of things that have to be done or requirements for ferrying three engines in the A380. And we'll have it in the show notes. And I mean, just some of the things is that they line up the aircraft off center for takeoff to compensate for the the kind of asymmetrical thrust. There are limits on how long they can fly, whether or not a lubrication system is available for the windmilling engine. They need to calculate different speeds that they normally do. Can't have a crosswind of more than 10 knots, I think it was. Yeah. I mean, it, it's the you can't use bleed air. This was my favorite. You have to use maximum thrust on the operating engines. Oh, no. I mean, so so it's it's going to be, uh, I mean, this whole thing, anytime you have to, to transport a, a massive jet engine, it's impressive. Right. But but this whole thing is going to be just a very impressive feat Correct to get this back wrong, on three engines. This has not been done with an A380 before, right? To the best of my knowledge, no. It's been done with a 747, I, I know that much, but an A380 doing a three-engine takeoff, that, that's a new one. I mean, I, it, they may have done it during, you know, during trials, but that, that's a good question for Airbus, so uh, we'll have to ask them. Yes, we should. But So that's going to happen. We don't know exactly when it's going to happen, but, but we'll kind of keep everybody updated on, on when we find out when that's going to happen. I'd imagine Air France wants their plane back. They only have 10 in the fleet, so that yeah, leaves yeah. maybe nine left. Well, they, they have to bring it back to Paris to, to fix the wing and the pylon structure so that they can put a new engine on it, you know, a, a, a useful engine. So hopefully that'll, that'll happen sooner rather than later and they get their plane back. So that is, I think... An extremely impressive, both because the aircraft was received as little damage as it did, but also the the follow on when these things happen, like what happened with Swiss almost last year now, with the the single engine failure and the amount of work that went into replacing that engine in Canada. Yeah, in winter, in that little tent they had to put up. Yeah, yeah, the engine tent. So I mean, anytime these things happen, it, it's you know always a good thing that no one's injured, and then always an amazing feat of engineering to, to get it back in the air. Good luck to them. Indeed. We're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to do something a little different that we haven't done before. I'm going to take Jason and Jeremy to Europe, and we're going to do a bit of a taste test of new aircraft and old aircraft, and we'll see how that goes when we come back after a little bit of break. So stay with us. Jason and Jeremy Dwyer Lindgren flew an Avgeek trifecta last week from Amsterdam to Zurich to London, and they fill us in on what made the day so special. We are here on location in Amsterdam at Schiphol Airport. So how do you pronounce it, Jeremy? Something like that. Schiphol. Yeah. Schiphol. Schiphol. Anyway, we are here in Amsterdam. We had a bit of an aviation triangle today, I guess, a bit of a triangle routing. Trifecta? Trifecta, yeah, something like that. So Jeremy is out here in Rotterdam for some personal things, and I came out here to join him on a couple flights today. Sounds so skeevy. It, it does, but we started in here in Amsterdam. We took a Swiss A320 down to Zurich. Spent, spent how many hours there? Five hours? Better part of six. Better part of six hours doing a tour of the airport operations. We'll get into that in a couple minutes. Then we took the Bombardier 
CS100, the C-Series, down to London City and had about a 30-minute connection, which is something you don't do at London City, back to Amsterdam to complete the day on an Avro RJ85, which is an aircraft that's kind of on its way out, so a lot of airlines are retiring them pretty quickly. So how did you come up with this routing? Because this was all you, and I was just along for the ride. Well, I thought I really wanted a C-Series, and I really wanted to get the RJs before they're gone. They've been gone from the U.S. for a while now. And the C-Series, especially now after this Delta Bombardier U.S. State Department junk, may not get them anytime soon. So figured I might as well do that and eventually talk Jason into coming along. So let's talk aircraft. The C-Series. Was this your first flight on one? It was. Been on it a couple times before in Montreal, but never flown on it. What was your impression? It was quiet, at least from the engine noise. The air conditioning system on the C-Series is actually much louder than the engine noise, so you really didn't hear the engines much, but you heard the constant hiss of the overhead air nozzles and the... It reminded me of a 717. Yeah, it, it was quite loud, especially when they were actually open and blowing air, and it was a little strange that the back of the aircraft, the rear, was quite a bit quieter and dramatically cooler than the front of the aircraft, and that could be a setting that the flight attendants can change, but... It was quite a difference from nose to tail of that aircraft. Yeah, I'd agree. It switched right right about the the engines, maybe a little bit before, and it was a dramatic change in temperature, and it certainly, the air conditioning system was at the very least quieter. But the aircraft is super comfortable. The seats are ultra-wide. The windows are huge. Swiss does a great job with their catering. They have a dedicated refrigerator in the front galley, just basically so they can serve chilled drinks, which... We did indulge in, since we were in paid European business class, because it was somehow cheaper than economy. We're not really sure why that happened, but we were happy to pay less to get more. Thank you, Orbitz. Yeah, really helped out when we were in the lounge in Zurich, and I was able to take a quick shower. Compare and contrast that to the Avro RJ85. What was that like? Well, you walked on, and you instantly had that dull yellow interior color. Which was interesting because a lot of the lighting on board had actually been switched out to LED, but not fully. Yeah, a lot of it had been, but I think it just had that worn yellow color anyway. And then the the window shades, you pull them down and they came down in two halves to meet in the middle, which was super weird. Absolutely I don't think I've ever bizarre. seen that before. I took a quick gif of that and I, I've never heard of it. I've never seen it anywhere. I don't know. Maybe it's specific to that frame. I don't know, but it was a, a split window shade. Really weird. The seats, at least on the CityJet version of the Avro, were 3-3 when this aircraft is intended to typically be in a 2-3 configuration, and holy crap, was it tight. I had the unfortunate of assigning myself, stupidly, a windowless window seat in the row that also happened to have, I guess, ductwork in the sidewall. So my seat was super, super restricted, and I was smudged up against the sidewall. But thankfully, I was able to switch to get to the back of the aircraft, which was relatively empty. I got a whole row to myself. But tell me a little about the departure, because London City is a short runway in basically the middle of the city. It's a little unique. So Jason, obviously, you've done this a bunch of times. I've never done it before. We had a pretty steep approach when we landed. That was pretty sweet, but the real kicker literally, was when we went out on the Avro, they gunned it up to full full power and then let go of the brake and it was like a rocket shooting forward and then we got up in the air and it was like a rocket shooting up. We made a very, very 
rapid ascent. It was, it was definitely dramatic when they let go of the brakes. You, you were propelled back into your seat. It's mm-hmm. not like a normal gradual liftoff that you have on your typical regional jet. This was pretty powerful. Yeah, the guy looked. The guy in the aisle seat in the row looked down at me like, "Whoa, boy, that was something." Yeah. Unfortunately, the rest of the aircraft it w- it was just absolutely falling apart because they're probably getting ready to retire it eventually. CityJet is replacing a lot of their aircraft with the Sukhoi Superjet of all things, but I don't think that's authorized at any point yet to operate into London City. So for now, they're going to need to keep the Avros around a little longer. And so between these flights, when we were in Zurich for about six hours. What did we do? We took a nice little tour around the airport. The good folks at the Zurich Airport Communications team met Jason and I, and we went for a nice long tour. They showed us behind the scenes of the baggage, little ramp tour. They have a just fantastic observation deck there. I've never seen anything like that. Fantastic displays. They had this this crazy, I don't know, what would you call it? Augmented reality. Augmented reality binocular site. Like, you know, the ones you go to the Grand Canyon and you get that binocular set with glass that they probably made for a nickel and it shows you look through this one and it's got a little almost like a heads-up display that comes up and you put it over you can zoom in digitally and then you get to a little marker and it brings up information like the the flight number the plane type all the it's it's kind of crazy i've never seen anything like it yeah and it does points of interest on the airfield as well like the air traffic control tower headquarters for one of the catering facilities and the whole spotting deck is open to the public. I think they said five francs for, for adults, free for children. And it was absolutely packed on a Monday afternoon, random Monday afternoon. And it's really geared towards children. But obviously, adults or aviation geeks can and should go. But they've done a tremendous job. And this tour that we went on is actually open to the public, isn't it? Yeah, they, they do multiple varieties of tours for all sorts of groups, everything from kids' birthday parties to, I'm told, they're already sold out through the end of the year. They sold out, and they think they said an hour. Yeah. They do big groups for ramp tours, for photos. They do custom ones. It's they There's, have, there's a think, bus tour, too. Yeah, they had eight or nine options. It was crazy. Yeah. So we had a bit of an extended tour where we were basically given the opportunity to go wherever we wanted in the airport. If we wanted to walk out onto the ramp and wave to the pilots of an Emirates A380 departing, cool, that's fine. Or let's go hang out near the runway and take some photos. That's also fine. So the Zurich airport people were really good to us. And again, it's a more typical version of this tour is open to the public. So go to the Zurich airport website. And if you're a transit passenger, if you're just there as a tourist regionally, highly, highly recommend you go check it out. Jason and Jeremy's trip wasn't all just for fun, though. We put them to work comparing cabin noise inside the C-Series versus the RJ85. Here's Jason. This is Jeremy and I having a conversation at normal volume on the CS100. Say something. Hi, Jason. What's up? How quiet do you think this aircraft is? I think it's pretty quiet. The, the air conditioning system is a little noisy, something that we noted. Uh, especially on departure, you could... The primary noise you heard wasn't the engine, it was the air conditioning. It was pretty wild. And now let's take a walk to the back of the CS100. Jeremy here, we're uh, in the back of a Swiss International CS100, flying between Zurich and London City. And we're getting a sense for how quiet the airplane is. One of the things they market is how quiet it is. And we're noticing it's pretty darn quiet. 
that were in the back of the aircraft. The last voice sample was in the front of the aircraft. And it actually sounds a bit quieter back here. What do you think? I would agree. It's, it's, it noticeably changes right about the time you pass by the engines. It's the total opposite of almost every other airplane. They get louder as you go further back, but this one's much quieter. Now stay tuned because we're going to do the same voice sample test on the Avro RJ85. Twice as engines, I'm assuming much more than twice as loud. And finally, cover your ears as we climb aboard the RJ85. We are now on the Avro RJ85. I'm in the back of the aircraft now. Jeremy is stuck in the front in a window seat. But it is quite a bit noisier. I can even see on the uh, audio track here on my iPhone that it looks a lot busier on the graph. But I can't really tell how much louder, but I have a feeling it's really going to show when you play back this audio. For now, this is Jason, and I'm signing off on the CityJet Avro RJ85. So we are back, and I hope you enjoyed something that was a little bit different. Let us know what you thought of kind of how that was put together, and if we should keep doing things like that as we are able. Let us know, podcast at fr24.com, and we want to hear what you what you think of some of the, the different things that we're going to be trying. Did you have fun? I did. I had a lot of fun. Not often you get to do three flights in one day where basically your only goal is to fly on airplanes and tour an airport. But again, I want to say thank you to the Zurich Airport people. The the tour there was just absolutely phenomenal. And I highly encourage everyone to go check it out for themselves. See, so when when you first posted that you were doing that, I was like, oh, that's really cool that they're, you know, they, they realize that they're there first. But, and then I was like, wait, no, 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 anybody can do that. Maybe not to the, the degree we did, but they do right. offer, they have a huge spotting deck, really high tech stuff, educational stuff. But they do offer ramp tours on a bus, which is super cool that anyone could do, transit passengers, or if you happen to be in Zurich locally, something that everyone should do. So switching gears from, you know, two engines, four engines to no engines, Hurricane Maria moved through the Caribbean and and left Puerto Rico without power without internet, without telephone service. And so a few of the things that have been happening to kind of bring service back. And and one of the interesting things is, as far as we're concerned is that X, the Alphabet subsidiary <laughs> that is, is tangentially related to Google, we're trying to be official about it, which is in charge of the Loon Project, which are these massive helium balloons that supply telecommunications from, you know, between 50 and 65,000 feet to the ground below. So they're moving into position over Puerto Rico in the hopes that they can begin offering telephone service in the near future. The issue right now is they've gotten the FCC license to begin doing this, but they still need a telecommunications partner in Puerto Rico to get this all up and running. Yeah, there's a, there's a lot of moving parts here. Your typical exactly. iPhone isn't searching for a cell signal that's coming from a balloon 65,000 feet in the air. It's looking for a cell tower somewhere down the block. So there's a whole bunch of hurdles to get this going. And I guess the number one issue is getting the balloons in position. 
Right. So what they do is is they basically, and we'll toss a video in the show notes because, I mean, these balloons are just massive and it's really impressive how they do this. They inflate them and they launch them. And then they control, they go up into the stratosphere and then they control their direction by moving them up and down into different wind layers. So they can position the balloons based on their altitude. And it's really actually fascinating. And they move, I mean, they're not moving fast. I mean, when you look at them on the site, we're talking about five knots, seven knots over the ground. I mean, so they're not moving fast over the ground, but they're up in these, you know, stratospheric wind layers. Right. And they kind of just go where the wind tells them to go. They don't have any propulsion on board. Right. Exactly. So they're, they're kind of at the, at the mercy of the wind, but they're, they're controlled vertically to, to move them to where they need to be. Right. And we're, we're finally seeing them in, in the Caribbean, specifically around Puerto Rico, though they kind of seem to be actually headed west at this time from Puerto Rico, which I guess is just a, a victim of the wind here. But here's one that is at 59,800 feet with a ground speed of 17 knots. So it, it, it's actually that, moving. That one's really moving pretty yeah, that quick. That one's hauling ass, really. This other one, let's see, it's got... Oh, it's not going to load, huh? Of course not. Oh, there we go. It's moving at 14 knots. And let's see, there are one, two, three, four, five, about half a dozen of these things floating around Puerto Rico right now. And they kind of need to, to chain together. So as one enters, one enters the region... It provides service as it moves out of the region. One is right behind it to provide coverage behind that one. And I guess it's going to take them a while to figure out the, the winds and how they can make this work in Puerto Rico because it's never really been done before. But it's super interesting to, to see them actually get real use because we've seen them on the site for years now pop up all over the world, the US, South America, Africa. They've been everywhere. And now we're finally, hopefully, starting to see a, a real world test of this balloon pumping LTE system. Yeah. So, I mean, it's right now it's the, you know, the FCC has been supportive with the licensing. The Puerto Rican authorities have been supportive with, you know, wanting to see this happen. So now it's just working towards getting a, a telecommunications partner to, to kind of patch into their network to, to get things off the ground. So hopefully that happens soon and hopefully we can see some really cool stuff you know, kind of take place and, and people get their connectivity back and the recovery on the island continues. Yeah, hopefully X can, can manage to, to make this work in a real world scenario. But oh, here's one, two knots, not, not moving too quick. No, that one, that one's, that one's not going anywhere. It's back. straight all the way out to the Dominican Republic. A couple <laughs> of them have. So, I mean, that, that's one of the things that I think we're we're gonna you know see more of, and, and so we'll keep track. So on the site, you can keep track of those with either the call sign, which is H B A L, kind of think helium balloon, or a type. So if you're typing in the ICAO aircraft code, ball B A L L. So that that's two ways to to kind of keep track. The ICAO code will also include other balloons. So if we're tracking any hot air balloons or anything like that, you'll also see those. Yeah, super cool that these things have ADSB transponders on them. Yeah, you know, it's it's great to, to see them up there and, and see them at, you know, 55, 65,000 feet. Yeah, 
Well, I think we should call it an episode so that you can go go to sleep and stop walking into doors. That sounds like a great plan. All right. Do we have any feedback? We have plenty of feedback. We, we covered a lot of things. People asked us to talk about Ryanair. They also asked us what what Monarch and Air Balloon were going to do with the aircraft. So there, there are those things. And then there's a number of things that people have asked us to talk about that we're going to kind of bring in some experts in, the, in future episodes and, and talk about then. And one of the things we'll be talking about a few episodes from now in three or four episodes from now is how Flight Radar 24 actually works. So we're going to go... Magic. Talk with some people. It's magic and a little bit more. And talk with some people who know much more than, than I do even about how the site works and dig into a, a few of the technical details because we've gotten a few emails about that. So stick around in, in a couple episodes for that. Next episode, we'll be back with what is likely our last Air Berlin update. <laughs> and hopefully an update on the Air France A380 and how it got home. So and, and hopefully some good news about the loons providing providing actual service. So we'll we'll go from there. Episode sixteen, we've made it this far, and I hope everyone out there is enjoying it. If you're enjoying it, please go and leave a review on iTunes if that's how you found the podcast. I know a lot of you have. And let people know that you're enjoying it. The more people who rate us and leave a review, the more people find the podcast, the more we can keep doing this, and the better we can make it. If you've got things that you want to hear on the show or if you've got quibbles, address those to Jason. No, no, no. That's not how this works. But email us at podcast at fr24.com and we read all the emails we get and we try and act on as many as we possibly can. So thank you for listening. Episode 16, I'm Ian Pechnik. And as always, I have been joined by the the tired and struggling through it. Jason Urbanowitz. Okay, good night. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next time. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.